If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 24, as we pick up this morning in verse 8. We are in a section of Deuteronomy where every couple verses is a new commandment. <clears throat> Remember, <coughs> Moses will die in a few days. And he has taken one last opportunity to pound the podium before the children of Israel cross the Jordan River into the promised land and out from under his tutelage to let them know, A, what God has done for us. How God has delivered on every single promise he's made. He's kept his word. He's kept his side of the covenant. But we haven't. And if we continue to break God's covenant then God cannot continue to bless us in the promised land. There are consequences to sin. We have got to straighten up. And that's why throughout the Torah, you see the word said a lot. Said is just a nice, common, simple action. Deber, which is the P.A.L. form of speak, is pounding the podium. Can I please put everybody on mute? Okay, all right. Again. So verse 8 says, take heed. What does take heed mean? Listen very closely because we're going to talk about leprosy. Leprosy was not something that would just commonly break out. Leprosy would break out because of sin. It was a judgment from God on sin. So it says, take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you observe carefully and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you, just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. If you're under God's judgment because of sin, the last thing you want to do is ignore God's instructions on how to come out from under the judgment, right? So what is the remedy for sin? Repentance. So God has laid out, here is what you do to show that your heart has changed, that you've repented, that you now want to be my obedient child again. And Moses says, be very careful to do that which has been commanded. Go to Leviticus chapter 13. God has laid out for us in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. Everything that the children of Israel are to do when there's a leprosy outbreak. Instead of repeating everything, Moses just says, be very careful to heed and do that which has been written. So what does it say? Let's start in Leviticus 13, just a little bit of it, not the whole two chapters. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, so whose instructions are these? They're the Lord's, his own words. When a man has a skin of his body, on the skin of his body, a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron and the priest, or to one of his sons the priest. The priest shall examine the sore in the skin of the body. And if the hair on the sore has turned white, and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it's a leprous sore. You guys all know, right, that leprosy in the Bible is not Hansen's disease, which is leprosy today. It was something entirely different. Then a priest shall examine and pronounce him unclean or defiled. So what has caused the defiling? God did. Remember how God struck Miriam? 
the sister of Moses and Aaron. Why? What did Miriam do? She talked against Moses. She and Aaron did. And God struck her with leprosy. And when Moses intervened and said, Lord, Lord, don't do this, what did he say? She's got to be unclean for seven days. Even with Moses interceding, he said, she has, how do I put it carefully? Boo-booed. And now she must suffer the consequences. And that's what chapters 13 and 14 are. How to be cleansed from the leprosy and restored back in good fellowship. So if you want to know more, just study Leviticus 13 and 14. Most of us just go, leprosy, yuck. Verse 9, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. Well, we talked about it. Let's go look. It's Numbers chapter 12. It's just a few verses, so let's read it. Verses 1 to 16. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. The word is not actually Ethiopian, it's Cushite. According to the Torah sages, this is Hagar. Hagar. Whether or not it is, I wasn't there, but that's what the Torah sages say. And Cush includes where? Down into Egypt. Saudi Arabia crossed Egypt to Ethiopia. So he said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Well, the Lord hears everything. Why would they say, and the Lord heard it? <laughs> this is where you take a deep breath and go, uh-oh, she's about to get it, huh? Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Yes, like Bob said, did you ever say to one of your kids, I heard that. Yeah. yeah. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out you three to the tabernacle of beating. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. Notice he doesn't call Moses, Right? He's had Moses, Aaron, and Miriam come, but now come into the judgment place. That's Aaron and Miriam. They both went forth and he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, was Miriam a prophetess? Yes. yes, she was. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly, and in which we have sinned. That's a confession. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. And afterward the people moved from Hesarot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Does the New Testament tell us that we're supposed to learn lessons from the Old Testament? What does this lesson say about speaking against Moses and the word of God that he brings? Don't do it. He says, don't do it. Didn't Aaron, he did it with her. Aaron did too, but... He didn't get leprosy. But the high priest has to do the ceremony to cleanse the one who's leprous. So he can't be the one who's leprous. It's only because his position, high priest, that he had to suffer through Miriam's suffering. So he admits in the confession that we are both guilty. But since he has to do the cleansing ceremony, which has to be done by a clean priest, he can't be unclean. So God didn't strike him. And the Ethiopian woman wasn't Hagar. Right? No. Hagar it was, was Hagar's back with Abraham. Right. Thank you, Mr. Zipporah. Zipporah. Thank you, yeah. Zipporah. Zipporah yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understand. That you're absolutely right. I misspoke. Hagar was with Abraham. This is with Moses. Uh, no, Zipporah was the first wife. Yeah. So he's remarried a Cushite woman, but it's not Hagar. She's long since dead. You're right. I misspoke. I apologize. Don't strike me with leprosy. Okay. Back to Deuteronomy. Hey, let me have a little of my caffeine. Maybe that'll help. We strike you with a wet noodle. We're on to verse 10. Verse 10. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. This is very important. We're talking about when the pledge is a garment. Um... Have you ever been in the mountains? Y'all look at me like, we live in the mountains. You know, it can be nice and warm in the day, but how it can get cold at night? So in the garments of pledge that people need to stay warm at night, that's what verses 10 to 13 are all about. So verse 10, when you lend your brother anything, and he gives you the garment and pledge, you cannot go into his house to get it. He must bring it out to you. Verse 11, you shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. So you, he brings it out to you during the daytime, and you hold it, but at night you must give it back so that he can sleep in it and stay warm. Verse 13, you shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. So you don't, until you get down to verse 13, understand necessarily it's talking about the garment, but it is. But if we go back to Exodus chapter 22, which is what he's summarizing, it gives us a little more insight, perhaps. Exodus 22, verses 26 to 27. 
Exodus 22, verses 26 to 27. If you ever take your neighbor's what? Garment as a pledge. That's what this is all about. You shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? It will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Today, how many changes of clothes do each of you have? 50. 50? Lots and lots. But I never lend my pajamas. <laughs> never lend your pajamas, okay. But back in biblical days, the poor, they sometimes only had one garment. That's all they had. Well, what they were carrying through the wilderness... You had to carry everything you own. Yes, when they were in the wilderness, they had to carry everything they own. But when they're poor and they have only one garment and you take it from them, and they're cold at night and they, they can't sleep and they're suffering and they're getting sick and they cry out to God, God says what? You're in trouble. I will hear it and you're in trouble. That's exactly right. Now, another commandment, starting in verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is within your land, within your gates. Who are the aliens? The gear, the non-Jewish people. Verse 15, each day you shall give him his wages. When? Every day. Every day. And let not the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it. Lest he cry it against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. This may not be as common here in the mountains of Georgia, but out in California, there would be places where poor workers would gather, and people would come by and pick up trucks and say, I need three people, and three would jump in. The next guy would come in and say, I need six people, and six would jump in. And they would go out and work in the fields for the day, then they would bring them back. And the Bible says you pay them that day. The reason they're standing out there is because they're poor, they're hungry, they want to buy food for the family. And this is described for us in Matthew chapter 20 in the New Testament. It becomes part of one of the Lord's parables. Matthew chapter 20 starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Watching pages. I'll take another shot of this caffeine. <laughs> well, if you've got day laborers, it would be kind of foolish if you said, well, I'll pay you tomorrow. You may not see them tomorrow. That's exactly right. They may never work in your field again. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Again, not common here in North Georgia, but very common out in California, near Los Angeles and the San Fernando Valley. Actually, there's a bunch in Canton, Georgia. And in you, can, you can drive down and pick pickup truck and pick up a guy to come do yard work, and you pay him at the end of the day. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Okay, so it is known around here. Yeah. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, and a denarius was the average laborer's wages for a day back in biblical times, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about the third hour, what time's that? 
So the first group he picked up at 6 a.m., this group's at 9 a.m. He went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Why are they there idle in the marketplace? Because nobody hired them at the 6 o'clock run. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. How much did he promise them? Whatever is right. Again, he went out about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, so it's about 5 p.m., we've come to the end of the workday. He went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right you'll receive. But there's only an hour left. They only work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. because then it's night. And again, from 9, noon, 3, and 5, the promise was whatever is right I will give you. No particular amount promised. So an evening had come, that's 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. So those who were hired at five that worked for one hour are going to get paid first. When those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. That's a day's wage. Why did he give them a day's wage? They only worked an hour. He just wanted to. Because he wanted to. Because they have families to feed. They're not standing out there looking for work for their enjoyment. When the first came, they supposed that they would each receive more. And they likewise each received a denarius. Is that what they were promised? That's exactly what they were promised. When they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do as I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called but few are chosen. What is this parable about? It's about salvation. It's about the fact that there will be people brought into the kingdom right up until the time of the return of the Lord and the establishment of the kingdom. And there are those who came into the kingdom early. Do they expect to receive more because they were early into the kingdom? The Lord says, I will give each and every one salvation because that's what I wish. Should we be jealous of what God gives to others? No, we should not. We should be content in whatever state we're in. But what if he's got three airplanes and I've only got one? Be content with what you got. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're up to verse 16. Here's an important principle for which I am eternally grateful. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. 
People say, hey, hey, that, that's wrong. That contradicts Exodus chapter 20, doesn't it? No, it does not. But let's go back to Exodus 20 and see. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generations. So they're being punished. Yeah, that's right. I didn't finish the verse, did I? Of those who hate me. That is, when the children continue the sin of the father, they're judged not for the father's sin, but because they continued in it. So, if you don't want the sins of your father to be visited upon you, what do you do? Repent. Don't follow. Don't wallow in the sin. Go to Exodus 18. Verses 19 to 20. Notice it's just a few verses before chapter 20. So God's already covered this topic. Exodus chapter 18 verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the diffi their difficulties to God. You shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work which they must do. Do you see how personal it is? It's an individual responsibility. An individual responsibility. Now let's go to Ezekiel chapter 18. I only thought that was important to point out because Judaism is described in the Bible as a community relationship. We serve as a community. But the sins are placed upon those who commit them. Exodus 18, start in verse 19 here also. Ezekiel. Ezekiel, sorry. Ah. Thank you. I appreciate y'all keeping me right on track. Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? So this is people talking to God saying, why shouldn't the son bear the guilt of the father? Because the Son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. So the people say, why shouldn't the Son bear the guilt of the Father? And God says, because he didn't continue in the sins of the Father. He did what was right. Verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a man turns from all his sins which he has committed, pay particular attention, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. 
Does that mean salvation is by works? Nope. No, it means that the one who kept God's commandments did it because of his faith. A question here. Go ahead. It, it does, it, it's really not denying that a person murdered, now he's repented so he doesn't have to be convicted and punished. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't take away punishment. This is talking about his relationship with God. Right. Yeah. Right. God can forgive, but if you stole the orange... You still have to return the orange. Yeah. Verse 22, none of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. That is the judgment thing. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord? Where is this repeated in the New Testament? In 2 Peter, yeah, chapter 3, verses 8 to 9 says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. What does it mean to turn from his ways? To repent. Does God anywhere say, you don't have to repent, I'll just not consider this sin anyway? I can't find it. I've been looking for years for the place where Messiah says, your sins have been forgiven, now go and sin some more. And I can't find that either, it's just not there. Verse 24, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity. What's iniquity? Lawlessness. And does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? Question mark. I heard a preacher just this morning on TV say, yes, absolutely. All we need to do is confess that Jesus is Lord and just keep on sinning. Where is that in the scripture? Nowhere I can find. It says, all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall what? Die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. We should be able to be saved in sin anyway. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it. What's that mean, and dies in it? Unrepentant. Unrepentant. It is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. What does sin indicate about your faith? If you're walking in sin, it means that your faith is not real, right? Doesn't that contradict the New Testament? Doesn't the New Testament say you can be saved and walk in sin? It does not. Does it say the opposite? This reads like Matthew 7 where the Lord himself said, Depart from me, you who practice lawless. I never knew you. 1 John chapter 2, 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read from Galatians last night, another list. There's warnings all through the New Testament that if you're walking in sin, you are not on the path to eternal life. You know, when you read this in verse 24, it makes sense to why the Lord can say to you, I never knew you. Because if you turn from your righteousness and start committing and living in iniquity, he says the righteousness you did do is never That's correct. 
And I can keep going down to verse 32, but it's going to keep saying the same thing. If you turn away from God and walk in lawlessness and die unrepentant, do you expect to wake up in the new heavens going, praise the Lord, life is good? The answer is no. And it doesn't matter how many preachers out there say, well, of course you'll be in heaven. Do we trust what God says or what the man says? What God says. This is depressing. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 24 to verse 17. Actually, it's not depressing. It's very encouraging to know that if you're walking in sin, you can repent. So long as there's breath in the body, you still have an opportunity to repent. And if you die never having repented and you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and say, you're not fair. He's going to say, go read Ezekiel 18. Here's a copy. Uh. Verse 17. Deuteronomy 24, 17. You shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. So is the child of Israel entitled to look down upon and mistreat the Gentile who wants to join himself to God? No, that's an error. Let's go to Deuteronomy 10. How many times does God warn us not to mistreat the stranger, the widow, the orphan? Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. Referring to the Lord our God, it says, He, the Lord our God, administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, you love the stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So when Israel was a stranger in the land of Egypt, did they like being mistreated? No, they cried out to God. So he said, don't you mistreat the stranger in your land just because they're strangers. And who administers justice for the orphans, the widows, and the strangers? God does. Deuteronomy 14, verse 29. Deuteronomy 14, 29. And the Levite, this is about the third year tithe. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, <clears throat> and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied. So the third year tithe is specifically for the Levites in your gates, that is in your towns, as well as for the widows, the orphans, and the non-Jews. The Gentiles who have joined themselves to the Lord. And it says, may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. What did God promise for obedience? Blessing. What did God promise for disobedience? Judgment, right? Not so much the blessing that you want, but the cursing. So look at Deuteronomy 16, verse 11. 
Deuteronomy 16, verse 11. Talking about the feasts and the festivals. It says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who's within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, that's the orphans, and the widow who are among you. At the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Again, God says, when you come up to the festivals, you bring extra food to share with the poor, the widows, the orphans, the non-Jews, the strangers, etc. Deuteronomy 26. I know I'm skipping over 24 because that's what we're teaching upon, but it's there too. But look, how many times, just in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, remember the strangers, the widows, the orphans. Chapter 26, verses 12 and 13. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levites, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. Why would you say such a thing to the Lord your God if you're lying? And you still kept the tithe. You didn't give it to the Levites, the strangers, the widows and orphans. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Lying to the Holy Spirit is a bad thing. A lying? Yes, sir. Ma'am, it's Rachel, right? Yes. It, all, uh, it reminds me of the rich young ruler that asked Yeshua, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he said, well, you know, have you followed these commandments? And uh, it was an oxymoron to say that he's rich, but if he was rich, then he may have not been doing this commandment by providing for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Yep, and the Lord said, give away that which you have, and he went away angry, didn't he? Yes, sir. Yep. Deuteronomy 27.9. When they're yelling back and forth, the commandments... Then Moses and the priest, the Levites, spoke in all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel... This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes which I command you today. And they go down through the cursings. Look at verse 19. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. So the people say, if we fail to provide properly for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, may God's curse fall upon us. And it did, because they did it. Yeah. Uh, isn't this almost like what we hear a lot of times now in these confessions? These people are speaking out in groups saying, we have not done this, we have not done this, we and they're not telling the truth. It's like you listen to the all vows and things like that. Some of those things are just like, who, 
who today does any of those things? But we're confessing that we hadn't done them. We're asking forgiveness. So some of these things become so religious that these people who have just stolen and taken and cheated and hurt are saying, I haven't stolen, I haven't cheated, I haven't hurt. Yep. And does God know better? God is saying, shut your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, they're just drawing curses down upon themselves. And that's false religion. And I think that's what James and some other things are talking about. True religion. Yep. And we're doing... But we're on the way there, so hang on to that thought, because that's exactly right. Where we're headed. Yep, that's where we're headed. Enough in Deuteronomy. Now let's go look other places in the Scripture to see if God has changed His mind. Of course, we all know God doesn't change His mind, but look at Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verse 9. All of Psalm 146 is a praise to the Lord. In verse 9 it says, The Lord watches over. What's that word, watches? Guards from Shomer. Watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. To Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, why do you think God repeats this over and over and over again? Is it hard for people to think of the poor? And not think of themselves. Well, if you're one of God's people, it shouldn't be that hard. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 6. This is all part of God saying through Jeremiah to the people. If you don't want Jerusalem to be destroyed, think about these things. Verse 6. If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow... And do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt. Then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. And how did the people react? They said no. Verse 10, they say, we're delivered to do all these abominations, meaning... We have every right to commit all these sins, and you've got to love us anyway. And that's when we come to Jeremiah 16 and 17, where the Lord says, all right, then will you at least keep the Sabbath? As they keep just saying, no, no, we're not going to follow you. No, verse 9 reads a whole lot like something Paul would say. You know, like, you do all these things, do you expect to make it into the kingdom? Yeah, it sounds a lot like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, doesn't it? Yeah. Jeremiah 22. In Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 22, God's giving the people an opportunity to repent. And these things are important enough to God to say, if you'll do these things. Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, 
Execute judgment in righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Does God care about the widows and the orphans as well as the strangers? He most certainly does. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 22. Another prophet. Ezekiel 22 verse 7. We'll start in verse 6 to see who the you in verse 7 refers to. Verse 6 says, look, the princes of Israel, that means the leaders. Each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you they have made light of father and mother. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Is God reading a list of reasons to bless them? No, in no way. Now let's go up to the book of James like Bob was talking about. As we get very close to the end of the Bible, God is still teaching the same principle. In James chapter 1 verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What does it mean to keep oneself unspotted from the world? Don't live like the world. Stop sinning. So that's a generic way of saying follow my commandments. But he separates out of the commandments these particular ones to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Right. Yeah. So is it important to God that we take care of the widows and the orphans? It really is. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Breaks my heart every time I hear a pastor say, yeah, but that doesn't apply to us. Because Paul didn't write that. It's because we have to take care of repair Yeah, okay. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19 through 21. When you reap your harvest in your field... And forget a sheaf in the field. What's a sheaf? It's a bundle of cut stalks. Your workers have cut them down, tied them in a bundle, meaning to bring it to the barn, and they left one in the field. Can you go back to get it? It says, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. 
that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Do you see now why Boaz, in the book of Ruth, tells his workmen, hey, as you're going along, spill some? Yeah. He says, spill some so that Ruth can pick it up and take it home. So when you forget a sheaf in a field, don't go back for it. It means that God provided it for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Verse 20, it's not just the wheat fields. When you beat your olive trees, why would you beat an olive tree? That's how you harvest olives. You put sheets on the ground, and you beat on the branches, and the ripe olives fall. So when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. In other words, you can beat them, the olives fall. What remains up there, don't come back later to harvest them. Leave those. If you've ever been in Israel in late October, early November, that's when they're harvesting the olives. And you see them all over the Garden of Gethsemane, putting sheets under the trees and banging on the branches. You get a chance to see this for real. Um, verse 20, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you beat on the boughs, why do some of the olives not fall? They're not ripe yet. So don't come back once they've ripened. Leave those. For whom? The stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So the stranger, these verses are there, right? They're not, yeah. They're not aliens, Yeah, like Ruth, they've come to worship God, to keep God's commandments, to obey him, but they don't have an inheritance, so how do they eat? Well, they get the corners of the field, they get that which is left behind, they get the olives that didn't fall in the first reaping, etc. That's how God provides for them. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. So you get to harvest one time. But those grapes that are not ripe, that are left behind, can you go back and get them later? No. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, meaning how would you wish the Egyptians had treated your forefathers? The cucumbers, leeks, all that. You're going to find that's the mixed multitude, not the children of Israel. But it spread, yeah. yeah. But did Egypt provide lots of wheat and grains and olives and wines and things for the... No, they didn't. It says, therefore I command you to do this thing. What's that, Bob? They provided mud with no straw. They provided mud with no straw, yep. Oh, I have a question out here. Let's see, a red number one. Repeats it over and over again because so often we don't even treat our own brothers and sisters very well. That's right. That's right. Keep your finger here and turn up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It's because of these verses that you hear the Apostle Paul say things like in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, meaning what? You used to be. So you've been saved. 
You've now been grafted in like the wild olive tree being grafted into the cultivated tree. You're no longer strangers from the Commonwealth of Israel. You're part of it. You're the gear that we've been reading about in the scriptures. And then there's a, a parenthetical here. Who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. He's saying that the saved Jewish people are looking down on the saved non-Jewish people, looking down on them as if they're second-class citizens. And Paul's saying, that's not right. That's not the way we should love one another. When Messiah says you know them by their love for one another, it means the believers loving each other, whether they were born Jews or Gentiles, men or women, slaves or free, black or white, makes no difference to God. And that's again why we read in the book of Luke. Go back to Luke. Chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? So if we call Messiah Lord, we say you're your people, we're your children, we believe in you, we've been saved by faith, believing in you, how can we not love each other? Because, well, you were born a Jew, well, you were born a Gentile, well, you were born black, you were born yellow. Does it make any difference to God? It does not. I'm sorry, I'm getting preachy. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. How many of you know Christine Darg? She teaches on the Jerusalem Channel. I was listening to her just this morning. And she was reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4. And she says that you and I were teaching doctrines of demons. Because we teach believers not to eat pigs. That's a doctrine of the demons that you can't eat pigs. She said, they were Jews. So we're in the New Testament. And I, I turned her off at that point saying, what does the scripture say? Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. The New Testament is supposed to be the law written on your heart, right? If it's the law written on our heart, how can we ignore the law? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Was Paul writing to a bunch of Jewish believers? He's writing to believers that come out of the Gentile world. So for any one of us who's saved by faith, we're a New Testament believer, it says keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Not how you were born, but do you follow the commandments of God or not? It's the litmus test of whether we know God. That sounds a lot like 1 John chapter 2. But before you go to 1 John chapter 2, Let's go to John 17, verse 3. To see why 
It's so important. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. How many of you out here would like eternal life? If you'd rather burn in the lake of fire forever, then just close your ears. You don't have to listen to this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. And then if you look at 1 John chapter 2, this is a test of do we know him or don't we? 1 John chapter 2. So, do we have eternal life or don't we? Now, by this we know that we know him. John 17, 3 says, if you know him, you have eternal life. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, is this important? Or are we just picking on irrelevant details? As the dean of my theological seminary said at graduation. If you look at First John 5, which says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Right. And the book of James is all about empty words doesn't save. How do you know whether the words are empty or true? By what you do, by your actions. Do you keep the commandments or not? Your halakha. Your halakha. Look at verse 6 of 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. What's another term for darkness? In sin. We lie and do not practice the truth. Are those words hard to understand? For some, apparently. Look at 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's what it is. In the same chapter, 1 John 3, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. He says, here's how you can tell one from the other. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. The ones that the Lord says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Yep. When we study Jeremiah... We studied Jeremiah. We're going to see Jeremiah calling people to repent. And he's outnumbered by a large number of false prophets saying, no, 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 God doesn't want you to repent. Is that the same thing we have today? Yeah, and it shows a lack of faith if you keep the commandments. You don't believe God will save you. Well, you're right. You're right. If you're saved, then you're keeping the commandments. Okay, never mind. Back to Deuteronomy 25. I'm getting preaching you. I try not to do that. It is important. I agree with you. And we are, we're like 
like where Judah was right before they went into captivity into Babylon because of the, all their false teaching that had happened. Yeah. And we see all, Ezekiel 34 talks about all the bad shepherds. Yeah. We are to the point now in America today where we've just had a member of Congress introduce legislation to make it a crime to take a child to vacation Bible school. Yeah. And Germany just passed yeah. legislation to make it a crime to circumcise a child. Yeah. So what these statutes are saying is that if you want to keep God's commandments and teach your children to keep them, that's child abuse. If you want to teach your children about God. You're not supposed to take them to church until they're old enough to make their own decisions whether they want to go and figure it out. Yeah. <coughs> so Deuteronomy 25. Verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court... What does the New Testament say for believers? Should we be suing each other in court? No, we should not. We should be able to work it out. But if there's a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten. What's he mean beaten? With a whip. Yeah, beaten. With a rod. That the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows, which is 40. Verse 3, 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. Now you mentioned 39, and that's custom, and here's why there's the custom. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That's exactly why the children of Israel give 39 in case we miscounted. Because you don't want to go above 40 because God said thou shalt not go above 40. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 22 to 24. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 22 to 24. Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Messiah? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 40 strikes minus one. It's exactly for what Daniel said. They were afraid they might miscount and go over 40 and break the commandment of God. But I wanted specifically for us to look at this. How many times was Paul beaten with 39 strikes? Five times. He did not have to be beaten any of those. This was part of what was called synagogue discipline. For speaking about Messiah in the synagogue, he was beaten with the 39 lashes. He could have said, no, I will not take the beating, I will leave. By taking the 39 stripes, he got to remain in the synagogue and continue to teach. So five times he took the beating to be able to continue to preach the gospel of Messiah to his brethren. Where he could have just said, nope, 
Forget it, I'm out of here. You guys can just suffer. That's how much he wanted to get the gospel message to his brethren. This also proves he did not go to church on Sunday morning. This also proves he didn't go to church on Sunday morning, right? The churches didn't beat people with with 39 lashes, right? But he was going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. As his custom was, it says in Acts chapter 17. This was different lashes than the Romans gave. Yes, this was not the cat and nine tails. Right. This was bad enough. Right. Yep, this was bad enough. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. When you cut down the stalks of grain, you take them out to a threshing floor, which has a hard service. You spread out the stalks of grain, and then you take an ox, which is tethered to a pole in the center, and walk them round and round and round, dragging a beam that separates the heads of wheat from the stalk. So that's what they're talking about. When you do that, the tendency is to want to muzzle the ox so he doesn't eat any of the grain. But God said, no, he's doing the work. He gets to eat. This is, it's used in an agagotic fashion. In, let's go to 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament. Well, yeah, but you know, you cook it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Yeah. Have you ever been to the Sorghum Festival up in Blairsville, up at Meeks Park? They have there a display where they have the horse or a donkey uh, tethered to a pole like that going around crushing the sugar cane before they put it through the boiling process to boil out the sorghum. So that kind of process is still used even today. But in 1 Corinthians 9, the key verse is 9, but I want to read 1 through 18. Because they use it in an agotic fashion to liken the muzzling ox to the apostles preaching the gospel. So verse 1, Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Yeshua the Messiah our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Meaning I led you guys to the Messiah, to salvation. If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, that is you that I led to the Lord. For you are the seal, the proof, the certification of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? And here he quotes from Deuteronomy 25. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. 
Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? He says, for our sakes, no doubt this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we, were te- if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Messiah. So he says, I have the right to lodging, I have the right to food, but I've never asked you for any of that. How did Paul make his living? Tent maker, says the New Testament. He was making tallits. Tallits. Wouldn't you like to have a tallit made by the hands of the Apostle Paul? I would. So he says, the fact that I have the right didn't mean that I exercised the right. I didn't take anything from you. And why does he tell him this? Because others are being accused of being false teachers. All they want is people's possessions and money. And Paul says, that's not my heart. That's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm preaching the gospel. For verse 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He could have said, have you read the book of Jonah? But I'm sure that people thought of that anyway. And then turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. So this is an agotic use of it. That is, using a biblical verse to prove a different kind of point. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So again, Paul tells Timothy that the the elders who teach in a congregation are entitled to eat and to lodging, but that doesn't mean that they have to avail themselves of it. Back to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. Oh, yuck. I'm sorry. Oh, goody. The topic of leveret marriage. Verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together, that's important. They dwell near each other. And one of them dies and has no son. The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That is, the first child born of the leveret marriage is considered the dead brother's child to carry on the dead brother's name and inheritance. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, 
Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come in to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his father's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Interesting story, you think. Surely this has never happened, but... Yeah, but the book of Ruth. So it's called leveret marriage. The Hebrew word is yibum, Y-I-B-B-U-M. And the ceremony, if he refuses, is called halitza. Halitza, H-A-L-I-T-Z-A-H. That's where she takes off his shoe and spits in his face. And they will no longer call him by his name in Israel. So the first thing I want you to do is turn back to Genesis chapter 38... Genesis chapter 38, and let's see where it's been used in the scripture. Genesis chapter 38, starting at first one. In my Bible, it's titled, Judah Wrongs Tamar. Verse 1, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. What's Tamar mean? Date palm. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. The Lord what? Killed him. I've heard at least three different preachers this week say God loves everybody. He would never hurt a soul. What does this say? And the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her. This is leveret marriage. Your brother died without issue. Go marry Tamar. And raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went in to his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. So he marries the wife, but says, I will not give her a child, because that child would be my brother's, not mine. I'm selfish. And God killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. In other words, what? I don't want to give you his wife to my third son. Was that a right thing or a wrong thing? That was a wrong thing. He eventually has to repent and say, She was more righteous than I. 
The story continues through verse 26, but I think that's the portion that's most important to us. So let's go to Matthew chapter 22, where the discussion of the elaborate marriage comes up to the Lord. Matthew 22, verse 23. Who got to inspect Messiah before he was crucified? Everybody. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, the Hellenists, everybody. Well, here is the Sadducees' turn. It says, the same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. How can they say there's no resurrection when it's taught plainly in Isaiah 26? Because they don't believe Isaiah. They only believe the first five books of the Bible. They don't accept the words of any other prophet. So they came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Rabbi, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's the leverate marriage of Deuteronomy 25. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. I bet her name was Lucky. I don't know. <laughs> Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Yeshua answered and said to them, You're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what does he say? He says, if you read the Torah, the first five books, it's in there. The resurrection is there as clear as day. Because he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. But does Messiah say, oh, leverant marriage. Oh, boo, forget it. No, he does not. All right. I mentioned the Halitza. You wrote that down, right? H-A-L-I-T-Z-A-H. That's the ceremony when the Next of kin says, no, I will not marry her. Let's, for that, let's go to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 4. Come on, Ruth, you're in here. I know you are. There she is, Ruth chapter 4. Starting at verse 1. Ruth's husband has died. Ruth is a Moabitess. She was not born one of the children of Israel. But she married in, and she has come and given herself to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and says, I'll worship no other. So verses 1 and 12, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative, that is the one who is closer to 
the family than Boaz, of whom Boaz has spoken, came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friends, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. Is it really friend? It's poloni amoni, which literally means so-and-so. What did it say in Deuteronomy? They won't call him by his name anymore. So what do we see in the book of Ruth? They just call him so-and-so. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he brings them to the judges. He said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Meaning what? You gotta marry Ruth. And the first child that's born is considered the dead husband's child and inherits his property. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. What did it say back in Deuteronomy? Take off the sandal. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, so he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Chilion's and Machlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And then, of course, who descends from her? David. Well, it doesn't say she spun him, but we know that it happened because that was all part of the deal. It just wasn't necessary to include all the details. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Back to Deuteronomy 25. Yeah, but I will not shake your hand anymore now that I know this. Yes. Somebody go to meeting. Does the Leveret marriage still exist today? The law still exists. Whether people do it or not, I can't say. And then what do you do if the, the man that the, the right goes to is married? Does he take another wife? One more time. If, if the man is already married. If the man's already married, does he take his brother's wife as a second wife? The answer is yes. Okay, thank you. Yep. Back to Deuteronomy 25. Wayne. Yes, sir. On that, uh, on that uh, question, um, it, um, it seems very likely that one of the Rothschild, uh, Rothschild family round about the beginning of the 20th century um, was involved in one, but the, the, the rabbinic 
ruling was that according to the laws of the country in which you are, and in this case it was Britain, um, obviously the laws did not allow a second wife, and therefore it was automatic. The, the, the situation, it's called Shalitza, was that she has to go through a ceremony where she takes off a specialised uh, bit of footwear, which is all multiple knotted, and she has to do it with one hand. If she is not able to release that boot and take it off, then she is bound and she cannot, uh, she's then banned from marrying anybody else. Interesting. And that appears to have happened um, in the Rothschild family at one point. In the Rothschild family. Here in the United States, could we do a leveret marriage? If I'm married, can I marry my brother's wife and is the second wife? The answer is no. So the commandment still exists, but the law won't permit me to carry it out. Not necessarily, no. That's why we're having a discussion about the Rothschilds in England. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, to me it sounds like it was the inheritance of the land was the primary issue. The land Actually, the, the primary family. issue is carrying on the name of the dead husband. Yeah. But the land is all tied into that. The yeah, the land ties into it, but it's carrying on the name of the dead brother. But since we live in America... I don't have to worry about the fact that my brother just died, leaving no children. Okay. Verse 11. Oh, here's another good one. If two men fight together, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him, and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, <laughs> then you shall cut off her hand, your eyes shall not pity her. My Tanakh immediately jumps in and says, no, 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 don't cut off her hand. It just means to fine her. There's nothing in here that says fine her instead. When it says your eyes shall not pity her, it means that hand goes. So let's not do that either. Verse 13, oh, this is a good one. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. Does this mean that you can only weigh things of one weight? Like I can only weigh a pound of something? I can't weigh half a pound? No. It means you can't have two sets of weights. One for buying and one for selling. When I'm buying, I use the light weight. So it looks like I'm buying half a pound from you. It's actually a pound. When I'm selling, I use the heavy weight so that that half a pound I now sell is two pounds. What is that doing? That is cheating people. How does God feel about cheating people? Yep, put that on your not good list. So you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light, one for buying, one for selling. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. That is, somebody wants to buy a cup of flour. Do you have a big cup and a little cup, one for buying, one for selling? The answer is no. Verse 15, you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. 
For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19 and see more about this. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 35. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 35. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. Notice very specific. <laughs> if it's a foot-long board, somebody wants you give them a foot-long board. What have we done in this country? How big is a two-by-four? <laughs> is it two inches by four inches? No, it is not. So, whether it's in length, whether it's in weight, or whether it's in volume, be honest. Verse 36, you shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest ephah. What's an honest ephah? It's a measure of volume of dry, mm -hmm, like wheat. And an honest hen, that's volume of liquid. So, for wine or oil, use the hen for wheat or rye or something like that to use the ephah. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, which means because I said so. They weigh um, jet fuel by the pound instead of the volume because temperature changes the volume. Temperature does change the volume, that's right. Do you get more gas in your gas tank for your dollar when it's hot outside or cold outside? When it's cold, yeah. Yeah. So back to Deuteronomy. We're almost to chapter 25. Verses 17 to 19 are a unit. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. Who in the world is Amalek? Descendant of Esau. What did he do as they were coming out of Egypt? Did he attack the strong, mighty men of valor? He attacked the sick and the weak at the, at the back, the elderly, the infirm. Verse 18, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest for your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So the commandment of God is to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven which means to destroy every man, woman, and child that there be no descendants. No one left who descends from Amalek. You know, that could apply today to the Palestinians. Yes. the weak and elderly and those who are not soldiers. Right. So in the battles in the tribulation period, what will happen to Amalek? He will be whacked out of existence. But it should have happened long before now. Let's go to Exodus chapter 17 and read why God is so unhappy with Amalek. Exodus 17. So it was not God's suggestion that they be wiped out. It was a commandment. I have a number one out here. Let's see what it was. Oh, people just... Okay. Verse 8. 
Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. This is after they've been attacking the rear guards. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. I want you all to raise your hand to about a 90 degree angle. And how long will you hold it there before it starts to begin to droop? 60 seconds. Yeah, not to, you can put your hand down. Yeah. So as his hands get heavy and, and they begin to go down, Amalek begins to prevail. Why is it important that his hands be raised up toward God? To show that he's holding the rod of God. So this lets everybody know that God's in the fight. And when the rod comes down, it pictures God disengaging from the battle. And then it doesn't go so well. Verse 12, but Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. That doesn't help his hand a bit, does it? And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. But did he totally wipe them out? He did not. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. And recounted in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. What's that? Adonai Nisi, right? For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This should have ended in 1 Samuel. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15. What does God command Saul, the king of Israel, to do? Verses 1 through 9. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them. They kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Even the animals don't take them. Kill them all. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. What are Amalekites? Descendants of Amalek. Amalek. 
And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they destroyed anything they didn't want and kept the rest. Is that what God said? It is not. It is not. So it cost Saul what? His kingdom. He continued to reign as king, but his son Jonathan was no longer eligible to inherit the throne after him. It cost him the Holy Spirit too. He continued to reign as king, though, until he did something else later, which was go to the witch of Endor, Endor as in Endora in Bewitched. Mm-hmm. The witch at Endor and conjured up Samuel. At that point, God took his very life. But he lost the right to be king when he refused to obey God and destroy the Amalekites. Let's go to Numbers chapter 14, verse 45. Sounded like his people, his troops, were kind of in on it with him. So it's like yes. the whole attitude of, uh, well, I'll obey God as long as I agree with him. Right. I'll obey God as long as it doesn't keep me from enriching myself. There you go. Yeah. So that that was worthless. Wait, they didn't want. It? What's that, Sam? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the Amalekites, who are they modernly? Um, we would call them Palestinians. Oh, thank you. Yep. Numbers chapter 14, verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. So the Amalekites have attacked Israel over and over again. Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24, verse 20. This is part of Balaam's prophecies. Verse 20. Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. And in verse 24. But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus and shall afflict Ashur and afflict Eber and so shall Amalek until he perishes. So this is an end times prophecy that Amalek is going to continue to harass and attack Israel until the time that they are wiped out completely. Go to Judges chapter 6. Just another enemy. Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. The Palestinians of today are not all just one people. They're remnants of several different nations that have harassed Israel throughout time. Judges 6.3 
primarily it's been the descendants of Ammon, Moab, and Esau that have been the thorn in Israel's side. Okay, Judges chapter 6, verse 3. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. So Israel would plant the crops, the Amalekites would come in and destroy the crops. This was something that happened over and over again. In Judges chapter 10, verse 12. And all these precede the instruction to Saul to just go slaughter them all. God's given them plenty of opportunity to repent. They refuse. Judges chapter 10, verse 12. Also the Sidonians were Sidon. That's modern day Lebanon. And Amalekites and Maonites, not Mayonnaise, but Mayonites, oppressed you. You cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. Yes, you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. So until Israel turned back to God, God said, I'm not going to stop the Amalekites anymore. But of course they did turn back to God. And God told Saul to just wipe him out. And he said, eh, okay, I'm not going to. And then in Psalms, Psalms, Psalm 83 Does Psalm 83 sound familiar? That's the name of the first battle in the tribulation period. Where all the Muslim nations that share a border with Israel are going to attack them. Psalm 83. Amongst those, we find in verse 7. Gibal, Ammon, and Amalek. So Amalek is still present after the rapture and the resurrection to continue attacks upon Israel. If Saul had destroyed them long ago, think of how much less Israel would have suffered. And then of course go to the book of Esther. Purim's coming up in just a few weeks, right? Should we have a potluck supper and read the book of Esther? Who is the bad guy in the book of Esther? Haman. Haman is an Amalekite. He's a direct descendant of Amalek. Who's the good guy? Mordecai. He's a direct descendant of King Saul. So in the book of Esther, we have the descendant of Saul and the descendant of Amalek. Which one will prevail? Mordecai, of course. What happens to Haman? Everybody go, boo. They stuck it to him. That's right. He was hung on his own gallows. How tall a gallows? 75 feet high. That was a long rope. No, that's not what hanging was means they impaled him on it and then stood the thing upright and he's hanging 75 feet in the air. Oh, telephone Yipper. Getting him down at the end of the day was tough. (laughs) 
I'm not sure they took him down. I think they might let the birds do that. Back to Deuteronomy. They were in the land of Persia, which wasn't following God's commandments. That's why they were there. They weren't following God's commandments. That's absolutely right. How much time do we have left? Two minutes. Two minutes. Let's start chapter 26. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it. So these commandments apply when you're in the land. Not when you're outside of the land. These are going to be things that have to do with God gave you the land. When you came into the land, it was growing food already. God provided it for you. And now God's going to tell you how to show your appreciation. Verse 2. That you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground. Which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. So does, does this apply to the fields here in Georgia? The answer is no. And put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So after they acquire Jerusalem, that is to Jerusalem. Crops grown in the land of Israel. You must take the first fruits and go up to Jerusalem. Let's look and see whether that applies outside of the land. You're going to find no. These are things in the land. So let's go back to Leviticus 23. We're talking about the Feast of First Fruits. The appointed time of First Fruits. Yom HaBikarim. Verses 9 to 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying... Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, where in the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. What does that mean? They literally pick it up and wave it before the Lord. Why? Because God said to. Yeah. You shall wave the sheep before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. It's always on a Sunday. This is the day that the Lord arose on the Feast of First Fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the Apostle Paul calls in the first fruits of the resurrection. Um. There are many calendars out there that show first fruits and Shavuot as not being on Sunday. Because after the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people had to decide whether to follow Messiah or not, they said, you know what? Having first fruits on Sunday makes it look like the Lord arose on first fruits, like these were about him. So they changed their interpretation. 
and said it doesn't mean the first day after the weekly Sabbath. It means the first day after the 15th of Nisan. So God says Passover is the 14th. Unleavened bread begins on the 15th. But he couldn't remember what day followed the 15th. So instead, he said the day after whatever day that was. They did it deliberately to try and keep people from seeing how the appointed times of Leviticus chapter 23 appoint to Messiah. So do we follow those calendars? The answer is no. We follow the Bible. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. The same is true on the Feast of Weeks. Look at verse 15. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, which is first fruits, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So the day after the seventh Sabbath will be Sunday. But they said, wait, 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 you're misinterpreting that. God didn't mean Sabbath, he meant week. He just couldn't remember the word for that. So um, it's whatever day is 50 days after the day after the 15th of Nisan. God couldn't figure that out. That's just garbage, okay. So what do we follow? We follow the Bible, we follow the word of God. And our time's expired, so we'll pick up next week, Lord. Not next week. Um, Daniel's going to teach next week. What are you going to teach on? What are works? I think it's going to be a fascinating teaching. I can't wait for it. So the week after, we'll pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 3.